The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. The Brandon Peters Show for our bonus episode, our wait, epilogue. Wait, we're not done. We're not done, Scott. They brought us back. This is our hi. We were done. I don't know. It's our epilogue. Our we had a really good finale, and now they're going to do a we? stupid movie. Did we have a good finale? They learned nothing from Homicide. Oh, uh, yeah. We're here for our final words, our after mash, our series that we call. And it, the voice you heard was Scott Mendelson from The Forbes. And why am I still here? Yeah, you got. Dr- I you thought got, I was done. There was that little line at the bottom of your. Of course, this was the Patreon thing, which we did not make the Patreon, but I wanted to do it. I couldn't go out. We could go out on those movies. Don't lie. They don't need to know that nobody. We gave made. Us money. I. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna cooperate. You gave us a hundred dollars. Thank you. An anonymous donor. <laughs> that might be my wife's bank account. Pull this over. Uh so this this episode we're doing better movies than last week. Um so we're gonna take a look at three movies that weren't quite qualifiers for the summer of eighty two at forty, but their presence was indeed felt. And uh, we mentioned a couple of them's names, almost the entire run for for it. But first off, thanks to everyone who listened in through this. This is actually the closest Scott and I are recording to an episode that drops. So as we record, the final episode is the only one left to go out, which we recorded a while back. And uh, this is us being more in the moment of things. And I've I've enjoyed your feedback. Scott has enjoyed your feedback. We're having the Scott Mendelssohns with uh, things. People are high on Scott again, I guess. They never again? Wait, wait, wait. I, went away. I, I wasn't cool? The Scott Mendelssohns. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, I had I had somebody <laughs> tell me that they were like, man, I didn't know Scott was like, I got to really change my mind about it. I'm like, okay, sure. Um, but yeah, uh, I apologize. <sighs> I had multiple requests for Scott and I to do a live episode, but I just, um, I don't know that I would want to do one of those and like a person show up or two people. So not yet. Not yet. <laughs> my confidence, uh, my, my, I don't know. I, I, I can't, I'm not ready for the live. Well, Scott, one of my Scott, kids you do a live one every asked. Sunday. Oh yeah. I liked live, you know, it just adds to the flavor. Oh no, a cat. Oh no, a child. We still have that. <laughs> yeah, it just makes me more relatable. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's where we're at. Um, but yeah, so thank you, everyone. It's been a lot of fun. Your comments, your tweets, everything. We helped win a game for people. The what's the what's the box office game called, Scott? 
Oh, that, that, that came out of I around the know. time of Wordle. Box. Yeah, I tried it the for Twitter a bit, thing. and I got yeah, I got too frustrated. But there was a July '82 on there. <laughs> Shortly after the episode dropped, you're all welcome. You're all welcome. That was a funny time. Uh, but yes, so yes, again for the 90th time, thank you, and I hope you return uh, next summer for the summer of '93 at 30. <gasps> Also Jurassic Park. Yes. See Jeff <laughs> see Jeff Goldblum give his performance from Jurassic World Dominion for the first time. <laughs> That's what you can do. Uh, but yeah, so like, but which, it's, a, it's the least of the baseball movies. Because the two good ones, Angels in the Outfield, Little Big mm-hmm. Leaguer, 94. We're yeah. stuck with Rookie of the Year, which is very e- sad. Yeah. Yeah. Rookie. Um, yep. We'll, watch a kid we'll discuss who- the complicated geopolitical whatevers of Hot Shots Part 2. Uh-huh. Boy, of those, all, all of those films have aged interestingly. Still funny. Don't get me wrong. And we'll talk about why In the Line of Fire, R.I.P. Wolfgang Peterson, kicks righteous ass then and now. Yes. Righteous ass. That could have been a... Eastwood movie. (laughs) Righteous Kill. That was it, yeah. But Scott and I will be back with something special before the summer of 93 at 30. And so we're going to move over to the news of the moment. It's the news of the moment. It's the news of the moment. And we're going to tell you about it. So coming soon, soon quotations, relative term, once we get it. Start getting into the can. Scott and I will be doing a director retrospective, and we are going to be doing the works of Tim Burton. So it'll be a exciting. Yes, we're going to be. It's a seven part comprehensive Tim Burton retrospective. He's made Uh, a lot of shit, man. Should we call it brushing up on Burton? I don't know what what's (laughs) what's the. Well, if we want it to be good, we need to have some big in the title somewhere. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yes. Uh, uh, big Eyes. Big, big Fish. Batman's Big Return. <laughs> Planet of the Big Apes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yeah, so we're going to do that. We're going. I mean, it's his movies. There's a lot of stuff that go on with him. For Scott and I... Tim Burton was one of our first favorite directors or first, no, you know, someone and we did, and he's got the Netflix program Wednesday coming out though. I, even though I didn't put two and two together when I thought of doing Tim Burton, it ties in, which we're hoping to include Wednesday in the retrospective. So we'll have more on that coming this fall to the Brandon Peter show, the Tim Burton retrospective. So stay tuned for that. But now uh, set your sights on something else big porkies in our commercial for the new motion picture comedy porkies we can only show you the outside of porkies because what happens inside is not to be believed we can only show you this much of the locker room scene this much of the cabin scene but we can tell you when you see porkies you'll be seeing the funniest movie about growing up ever made porkies you too will be back for a second look Rated R. Starts Friday, March 19th at a selected theater near you. Directed by Bob Clark. Written by Bob Clark. The cast is Don Monahan, Mark Harrier, Wyatt Knight, Roger Wilson, Cyril O'Reilly, Tony Ganois, 
Kaki Hunter, Kim Cattrall, Nancy Parsons, Scott Columbia, Susan Clark, and Chuck Mitchell. In 1954, a group of Florida high school guys try to help their buddy lose his virginity, which leads them to seek revenge on a sleazy nightclub owner and his redneck sheriff brother for harassing them. Scott, your take on one of the biggest movies of 1982. Yeah, this was a phenomenally successful picture. It was the biggest grossing movie in Canada until like, uh, I think, Resident Evil Afterlife, believe it or not. It's still number three um, of, of films you know, that, that earned XYZ in Canada. It made $160 million worldwide on a $5 million budget. It spawned several sequels. And because you know, I, I watched this. I don't think I'd ever actually seen this one before. Obviously, pop culture osmosis, yada yada yada. But what struck me watching this picture after seeing the, the Last American Virgin and and you know, Doctors in Love and the other you know sex farces, fast times, fast times. Thank you. Yeah. That was a better example. Is that this one is really well made. It looks like a polished, well produced, well structured, decently budgeted movie. And I think that's the Bob Clark touch. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's one of those those filmmakers that without really making you know, without really imprinting himself on his work, he kind of pushed pop culture in a very specific direction. I mean, you think, you know, he almost he more or less invented the modern slasher film with Black Christmas. He made one of the defining post-Animal House sex romp ripoffs with Porkies, and then he followed that up with a Christmas story, which Actually, I think he did pork. Anyway, I'm skipping around a little bit, but that's become one of the definitive Christmas comedies of the 1980s for a guy that doesn't, you know, people who study this stuff know who he is, but he's certainly not a marquee name in this day and age. He did put his name on this one, Bob Clark's Porkies. Fair enough. That one, I did notice that. I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't remember. And the film was enough of a success that not only did they want a sequel, they wanted him back for the sequel. Because I think they realized that, you know, whether it is a good movie or not, it's a very well-made version of what it is. And basically, he agreed to do Porky's 2 the next day in exchange for getting carte blanche on what would become a Christmas story. Mm -hmm. As for the movie, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I certainly wasn't overwhelmed by, wow, this holds up better than I expected, or this isn't as raunchy and vulgar as I thought, or this is more nuanced than I was expecting, which is what I got watching some of the pictures, you know, The Last American Virgin and what have you. Porky's is what you is pretty much what you expect. You know, it is a youth-skewing riff on Animal House without that film's comedic genius, frankly. It is basically, it's closer in spirit to something like Revenge of the Nerds, than Animal House. I mean, is it a good movie? No. Do I think, you know, do um, do I disagree with those who call it one of the worst movies of the year? You know, Siskel and Ebert got on their Puritan streak that they sometimes did back in the day and were, you know, wah, wah, boo-hoo. Yes and no. I mean, 40 years ago, you'd watch a movie like this and you'd wonder if it was, in fact, warping the culture of America. 40 years later, you know, no one's going to watch this and you know, it's just going to be an artifact from a bygone era. As a movie, it is well made, it is polished, but it's, I would argue, is relatively uninteresting. 
Um, I was, you know, whatever I got out of it was mostly from a culture, cultural artifact point of view. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's good. I, I This time has not been kind to it. And I don't mean that in a way that not, not in the, the form of like misogyny or anything like that, but sex and stuff is not that taboo as it was during Porky's. And it's a time like when I, in the nineties and stuff, when I was first learned about, I heard about Porky's, it was like that. Porky's all it was that it was that dirty movie. You could get away with running or something or, you know, and people talk about certain scenes and stuff, but I guess in an era where we have lots of sex comedies or movies where people openly joke about sex and talk about sex and stuff like that through like raunchier comedies that kind of um, were able to harness the raunch in with good character stuff. Like this is just all raunch at a time where there was not anything like it. Like they took some things from animal house. Isn't just full of raunch and stuff. It's got slapstick things around it as well. This is just amused with ha naked and ha virgin and ha you know that's all you know it's just what if some somebody had to break this door open and I I guess I'll give Porky's credit but there are a lot better movies later this year tackling that same stuff that actually had like a some story or something with it but I just noticed when I'm watching it, there's a lot of scenes of just people sitting and laughing at how funny you're supposed to think this movie is. Like, this, yeah. ha, 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 ha. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And, and this that's before all the, you know, how women are, are viewed in this and how asshole the guys are to Pee Wee and what a perv he can be, an asshole. Like, before all that, it's just kind of boring. <laughs> and it's got boobs and sex jokes and all this, and it's just done. And I, I'm, I was, I didn't imagine having any sort of like struggle to like continue through Porky's, but it was just kind of just lame. Uh, and that's yeah. probably because I'm not a middle school kid sneaking in a watch of Porky's while my parents are sleeping or something in the house. I get that appeal, but even nowadays, you wouldn't have that. And then. To be honest, in the 90s, and this movie probably doesn't hold up well at all, American Pie came in and did, like, Porky's better. Like, that's what it came in. It's like, okay, let's have that Porky's vibe, but let's, like, make a movie, too. Um, Clark, yes, technically proficient. It looks, like, Porky's doesn't look like trash. Porky's will inspire a lot of trash from trauma that's just, like, Waitress and Stuck on You and all these garbage sex comedies that Troma will just cash in on the Porky's train. Uh, but Porky's is the class of that. But I this high school, man, oh, I go to Rid- Ridgemont High for high school or wherever the hell the last American virgin went. Um, he's a lot cooler than Pee Wee. Yeah, I just, oh, man, this is, it's grody. The Porky's stuff with it, too. I just, I'm like, this is stupid. I, I don't know. Like I, I, I was not. I was not expecting myself to be like so down on Porky's. I was expecting to be like, well, it's a relic of its time, and for then it was. And I just, I just, I don't. I'm not gonna watch Porky. I don't even recommend Porky's again. Like just skip on over to American Pie if you want yeah. the da- if you want the dated Porky's. I, yeah. Uh, and for what it's worth, I mean. 
you know, and I'm, I'm talking about just the first American Pie, the sequels or whatever, but I mean, mm-hmm. that's a film that I think is at least trying to be closer in spirit to Fast Times at Ridgemont High in terms of it's actually, you know, has characters that are nuanced and have arcs and have desires mm-hmm. and, you know, has, you know, pardon me for being generic, has something to say about the human condition. Uh, Porky's isn't even trying. No, they're just sitting laughing. They're too busy laughing. Like, I don't even know who these characters are. Like, I'm forced to be with Pee-wee, so I know he's a virgin trying to get laid. Uh, But the other guys are just bullies, like different variations of bullies. And there's some girls that talk shit, but I I don't know. There, Yeah, there's there's that scene with Kim Cattrall where she howls. There's the the hole in the shower scene. Um, I will say that the one after the shower about the sketch artist, a little over, it's kind of funny. I'll give it that, where they're all sitting there laughing at her, trying to turn in about the situ- this situation that just sounds ludicrous. But I, yeah, I there's the scenes you know from Porky's, and there's still those scenes. But they're, I don't think there is, they don't play as hard as they used to. And the rest of the movie is just this jumbled mess of people being assholes to people. And yeah, I, I just. Mm. Yeah, and it, it doesn't help that we watch this quote unquote out of order only after having seen a number of. Yeah, that probably. Better, you know, quote unquote teen sex comedies. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it's it's like, you know, it's it's. <laughs> you know, silly example maybe, but you know, it's watching uh, you know, Superman three only after you've been on a streak of watching Batman, Ninja Turtles, <laughs> Tracy, Rocketeer, you yeah. know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I would probably watch Zapped again over this. And Zap uh, I would. <laughs> like, I, um, that, that's that's the know. bar here. Like I, uh, Porky's like and I hate it because like Porky's has this even then this bad reputation of just being this awful film and i hate to come in here and be like well I critics mean, were right i mean bob clark i mean he's good at what he and he is definitely one of our most under uh, overlooked underestimated directors for the staples he made and the like he also had a zombie movie children shouldn't play with dead people that's quite popular cult film like the guy ahead of his time or just Making stuff and no one's paying attention. I think a lot of his stuff just didn't get wide releases, and home video really got that guy probably a name. I mean, Christmas Story was more so a people saw it on television than they yeah. did, and then Black Christmas wound up being this. Hey, did you know they made something like Halloween before Halloween? No, oh, I absolutely what? agree with you. Black, uh, Christmas Story only became a big deal through years and years of television airings. Yep. You know, I think it made like twenty million domestic when it came out. I mean, Porky's Two, which was a you know, part of the devil's bargain to make a Christmas story still made 55 million bucks. Yep. And in all honesty, like that's the tale of it's a wonderful life as well. Same as Christmas yeah. story. That, Even wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that happens that much anymore, but you know, there are films that, you know, gain a life, you know, after theaters. Shawshank Redemption. And, I mean, that was yeah, for that, Oscars that weird, and stuff. I mean, but, yeah, yeah, because it yeah. got a bunch of Oscar nominations. But yes, it did go from a well-reviewed picture that didn't do a lot of money theatrically to one of the most popular movies of all time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but not Austin Powers, because that was a hit in theaters, damn it. Yes, it was, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it's not directed at you, but, it, you know, I've been, you know, it, I, 
that film's success and the 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 narrative that it was disappointing in theaters and only caught on on video and then the sequel broke out that's been giving false hope to decades of failed fans of failed franchise stars. Yep. Yeah. Um but anyway. Yeah. Uh yeah, Por- I've never seen Porky's 2 uh the next day and I've never seen Porky's Revenge, the third one. And I, now I don't particularly want to. I'm not going to get there. I, I, if I want to see the guy who played Porky in a movie, I will watch Better Off Dead. A much, yeah. much, one of the best 80s teen comedies ever. Sorry, John Cusack. I love that movie. Um, <laughs> Does he not like it anymore? I apparently, think. he won't talk about it. If you bring it up, he won't talk to you again in an interview. So Whatever. I'll just talk to him about 1408 for an hour. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, That's true. But uh, yeah, any last words on Porky's? This like I have no, no. detailed thing, like no analysis. Like it is just literally scenes of people laughing at their own jokes at the movies. Jokes like, like it has a laugh track, but they're on screen. Like that's yeah, Porky's. Yeah, I mean I, the one thing that stood out is that it was it was polished in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, and maybe that's you know because you know I well just like like a last American version you commented there's a pool scene you're like this looks like yeah. a freaking movie yeah so yeah but uh, yeah if we're done with Porky's let's take a look at its opening weekend at the uh, it did seven point six million dollars which was huge back then mm-hmm. uh, it opened in mid March of two of nineteen eighty two in one thousand forty eight theaters it actually jumped up twelve percent despite only adding 11 theaters for an $8.6 million second weekend. It did 8 million in weekend three, 8 million in weekend four. We're talking, you know, minus 6% and then up another 0.6%. Mm-hmm. It will go to 6.5 by weekend five, and then it would decline between 15 and 20% for the next month and change. But this, this, you know, the reason we keep bringing it up during the summer of 82 podcast that we just finished is that it stuck around. Yeah. Um, it ended up with a hundred one or hundred, you know, hundred and five million dollars domestic from a seven and a half million dollar opening weekend, which even in the nineteen eighties was was huge. Um, this was a genuine phenomenon. Yeah, and it actually it opened in Canada the year before, right? Yes, it was a Canadian film. It was it was partially yeah. it was shot in Canada for tax, you know, for as basically a tax shelter. Mm-hmm. Hold on, I'm doing some math that I should have done before the show. Um, credited as an 81, uh, 81 release, but in America, it's a 82. It's the Superman 2 of raunchy sex comedies. <laughs> and then, so yeah, it did 106 in 1982, which would be... Oh, around $321 million adjusted for inflation. Whew. Remember when people went to the movies? Yeah. <laughs> hey, they went That's to Top Thor, Gun. Love and Thunder numbers. One of our listeners caught that you kind of predicted, incidentally, Top Gun Maverick, which I think was jokingly. I was joking because, I mean, if you <laughs> read some of my other stuff, I was way off the mark. I, I did not think Pete Maverick Mitchell was as much of a marquee character as Ethan Hunt. Also, I mean, I, I don't like the movie as much as everybody else did. I don't begrudge that. I think I enjoy its subtext more than the actual movie itself. Yeah, uh, I enjoy the whole. You know, Hollywood has so badly failed to make new movie stars that Tom Cruise thought is to get get off the bench and save the day. Which you know, as a metaphor, would have been kind of quirky and fun in 2020 in a non-COVID world. But by summer 2022, it was shockingly prescient. Um, but anyway, that's you, hey, the Maverick and Iceman were the 
uh, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and Carrie Fisher to some people. Or yeah. Carrie Fisher. Princess Leia. That was her character's yeah. name. So, I um, mean, they've been waiting for it. and Yeah. I just felt like, because I remember in the 90s, people really wanted another Top Gun, but I thought that might have like, fizzled not been a big crowd, but man. And I'm well, happy. I think, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it literally saved the summer. I mean, it completely overshadowed the real problem, which is that studios just weren't putting out movies this summer. Right. You know, it's it's Top Gun is about, you know, it's going to make about 700 million domestic by the time it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it had made, you know, this summer made 28% less than 2019, despite having basically half the movies in wide release. Right. If Top Gun only does 150, 200 million, whatever, which even that would have been huge, wonderful for a Tom Cruise movie, you know, the, it would have been like a 42% lower summer compared to 2019. Yeah. So again, it single-handedly turned what would have been an absolute catastrophe into a halfway decent summer movie season in terms yeah. of theatrical revenue. All by itself. Yeah, really, all by itself. Because mm-hmm. everything else, I mean, they were hits, but Doctor Strange did about what was expected. Jurassic did about what was expected. Minions, likewise. Uh, Thor, likewise. Nope, did a little bit less, but not catastrophic. Lightyear bond, but you know what? That's Pixar's bomb before it happens. Mm-hmm. It, it's that's usually not life and death for the entire summer season. There just wasn't a lot of product, mm-hmm. and right now we're in the middle of a giant slump, which is entirely due to studios not releasing movies. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of reasons for that, but it's it's very frustrating because we've known since May 2021 that movie theaters are back if they're allowed to be. Yeah, and they keep running into these, you know these random slow spots just to have no product. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, what's not slow is the our next film, The Sword and the Sorcerer. Dungeons and dragons. Wizards and witches. Magic and revenge. And a warrior caught between. Sword and the Sorcerer. Rated R. Directed by Albert Pune. Written by Tom Karnowski, John V. Stuckmeyer, and Albert Pune. And starring Lee Horsley, Kathleen Beller, Simon McCorgendale, George Maharis, Richard Lynch, Richard Mull, Nina Van Palant, and Anna Bjorn. A mercenary with a three-bladed sword rediscovers his heritage's dangerous future when he is recruited to help a princess foil the designs of a brutal tyrant and a powerful sorcerer in conquering a land. Now, this film literally is about a sword and a sorcerer. They Who's did not advertising? So, Scott, uh, this one uh, popped up during, you know, this was a, a constant moneymaker down to almost the end it lasted longer than Conan. It was going to best the Beastmaster when we left. Uh, and in the time we did this, we, when we started this, we both had not seen The Sword and the Sorcerer. And then uh, it came out on 4K Ultra HD during our recording. So I did, in, in the midst of it, saw The Sword and the Sorcerer. But I have now watched it again because that was months and months ago, even though I wrote a review. Um, they don't always stick in my head. So, um our, our our 
third of the sword and sorcery labeled literally sword and sorcery uh, film. So what were your take on the sword and the sorcerer? Oh, it's my, sorry. I missed yeah, the last yeah. words. Um, no, I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I think the film is stronger in its first half when it's doing its world building when it, cause I mean, it really is stretching that $4 million budget in a way that I found genuinely impressive. Mm. Um, this is clearly Albert. Is it Pune? How do you? Is I, it Pune? I think it's Pune. Pune. That's actually easier to say. So I'll go with that. Albert Pune is sort of one vaguely respectable playing in the big leagues title, you know, which was followed by an entire career of B movies of various quality and various yep. sub, you know, he made a Captain America movie in 1990, which mm-hmm. at the very least contains a very strong performance by Scott Paul and as the Red Skull. He launched um, Van Damme with Cyborg. Yes. A film that I think was supposed to be a sequel to Master of the Universe that didn't happen. Yes. And, you know, he did this weird little movie with Andrew Dice Clay and Terry Hatcher called Brain Smasher, A Love Story. Yep. Um, he, ha- he has a cult following. Um, and especially as he's gotten older and unfortunately he's not, he's not well. You know, he's sort of been, been reevaluated in the sense of a guy that did a lot with a little making the kind of quirky off the off, you know, unconventional studio programmers that we now don't, you know, we don't take for granted anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not his films are good, that's an open debate, but they're certainly not, they're not boring. Nope. And this is the way I felt with this. I don't think it was a fantastic film. I'm not going to be a, a troll and scream, Sword and the Sorcerer is better than Conan, because it's not. But it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the production design is spectacular. I enjoyed the fact that the characters are roguish without really going that soft, even by the end. The, the ones that are supposed to be. I mean, the, the, the hero is basically a Han Solo type guy, as opposed to a Luke Skywalker type guy. I mean, the Luke Skywalker is basically in prison for most of the movie. The special effects are, I would say, terrific considering what he had to work with. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I like a lot of them. <laughs> it's like, oh. And they, you know, without you know sounding like an old man screaming at the clouds, I think when you watch movies like this, the special effects are more impressive because you know whatever they did, they had to figure out how the hell to do that. Well, also too in this era, like lighting, camera it takes expertise to even get something that's schlock or poor. Yes. Like it took a lot more talent to figure out how to light it to shoot it right, and when it looks like passable and good like this, that's actually pretty impressive. Yeah. And, you know, because the special effects are limited, you know, sometimes almost by default, you see great filmmaking skill and just hiding the limitations of those effects. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, in terms of modern blockbusters, sometimes something that makes a movie stand out as more realistic than it otherwise might be is when I see the camera almost playing peekaboo with special effects. Mm-hmm. Even though I know in my head it's you know it's computer animation or you know whatever you know they could afford to show it in full view if they wanted to, but they're choosing not to to sort of keep the illusion. Right. Uh, I hope that makes sense because I was making that up as I was going along. But you know it's it's not a fantastic picture, but it's interesting. It makes you know an interesting film festival with Conan and the Beastmaster and uh, Demons the Dragon Slayer. Yeah. Um and Crawl. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, this is certainly a film to watch on the, if you like the last two Thor movies, you might want to check these out list. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I it's nothing that I'm going to revisit all that often, if ever, but I, I'm glad that this podcast led me to finally watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, 
is it the goriest of the three that we've done? Yes. Yeah, there's some pretty bloody. Uh, they've, I mean, the sorcerer stuff, uh, Richard Mole, like that's really cool. Like his look and stuff, it starts out impressively. Like I'm that scene where they resurrect him and stuff. I'm like, whoa, shoot! And I always like, I have a fascination with these old fantasy cheapies that I I do with uh, nowadays that I have had my whole life with slasher movies, where I'm like, all right, you all you all are have the same goal, but who's good at doing what and what do you think's important? And I always like that they have these like little rooms that are obviously some fancy ballroom in a castle or throne room. Like, how do they dress those sets? Why do they use it? But as dark and serious as this movie is, or the tone, the look of it, it's not afraid to have fun. And um, in its fight scenes, in particular, it's kind of bop and swashbuckler with, with things. It's not too, like, serious when things go, like, sword fighty and, and people pandemonium tables getting thrown over there's there's room for there's room for humor and it's it's got weird stuff like did zelda see this and be like oh yeah that sword where you shoot the blade out um it's a it's pretty silly sword uh i don't know how you carry it around i I get maybe in a fight you might do some stuff with it but um man uh women in this movie uh i don't know who's better at it porkies or this uh but We have a princess who is there just to be someone's boner toy. Like that is it. Like that is her care. Like I, I'll tell you what. Like what's her name? Um, Kathleen Beller plays the hell out of this role. She's great, but like the lines they give her and the, her whole character's like mission is to like, oh, I'm around some. Oh, I guess I'm gonna be forced upon now. Um, some guys, <laughs> some guys more kind than others. At least the the bad guy at least wants to marry me too. You know, like the, the, even the hero, like yeah, I don't want to do this, but if we can get in the sack, I'll help you. Do it. Okay, sure. And then in the end, it's like, hey, don't we have something to do? It's like, oh my god, really? But that's a joke. Okay, fine. But yeah, just the way. And there's always, of course, these scenes in these movies where it's like, oh, I stumbled upon the the naked women room where they just sit and put oil on themselves and bathe and wait to be boat. Like, just kind of like, okay, that's a that's something that all these movies find important. But I mean, you know, when we were you know buying, building, buying our house, that was offered as an upgrade, but we decided, right. eh, we'd rather have thicker carpet. Right, right. But no, this has got some cool mood lighting. It's. Uh, it's not a bad watch at all. Richard Lynch is always fun in B movies, like a B movie horror movie superstar. But here he is in fantasy land, and you know it's it was a tough movie to find back in the day. Now it's like readily it's on Tubi. It is on blue. It's on finally on Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD. Um, I don't know if it even went to DVD. I think it might have been short lived or something like that, but. You know what? It's it's fine. It's fine. Like that. Yeah, like you said, the Beastmaster, Conan, and Sword and the Sorcerer trifecta that make it for a heck of a fun night. These are it's better than the Deathstalker movies, which Corman would do, or the Sorceress. Like it's better than his. Even though I think Death Deathstalker two is a high recommend for me. That movie rules. Yeah, uh, this is on the higher end of it. Um, if you're in more in for the blood, you go for this one, I guess. Oh yeah. No, and I did appreciate how gory it was in that 80s PG kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I mean, you know, even Conan the Bar the Destroyer, which was a PG movie in '84, that had more blood and gore than I, a lot of PG thirteen movies today. Well, the sissy wow. one, Scott. That was not the good Conan. I I like the Destroyer. I, I think it's fun. Come at me. It's funny. It's fun. It's like yeah. It's. <laughs> I like the, one of the things I like about Conan the Destroyer is the practical effects in that movie yeah. and the sets in that movie are cool. Like those win me over just aesthetically. Like, sure, but I know that's not a that's not a popular movie, but it's popular in this house. <laughs> Am I saying it's better than the first one? No, I'm just saying I enjoy well, it. That's it. And even it kind of makes sense the fact that you know in the first film he's all grim and dark because he's trying to avenge his parents mm-hmm. and find his lot in life. And in the second film he's okay. I I found inner peace. I'm gonna just kick ass and save the day. Yep, exactly. It's a fun adventure. Um, yeah, but um, but no, you can see also where- a fun adventure. The sword mm-hmm. and the sorcerer. Yes. Well, you can see where Pune. Yeah, he he was pretty well formed upon arrival um considering i've seen a good handful of his movies uh this he's got like he he's like a i don't know i want to compare to like john carpenter where it's like it's a guy that you know can get the most out of like the least amount of resources and stuff that you can do and like at a high level um sort of like that like uh like very um James Wan, Lee Wan L type people where it's like you give them like a couple bucks, they're going to flip it into like 10, like, yeah. you know, or, you know make it look more expensive than they had any right being. But uh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, and again, I'm not going to sit here and say that most of his movies are good because all due respect, I would say they're not, yeah. but they're interesting and watchable in a way that we used to take, that we used to take for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that's sort of a running theme of this entire podcast. It's probably that, yeah. it's that, you know, back in the day, even a lot of bad movies were compelling in a way that a lot of bad and even some good movies really aren't today for right. a variety of reasons. Right. Um, uh, th- this movie was a rushed into production one they they wanted to beat Conan and they did and they made and they, about as much money yeah that's what that's you know not to skip ahead to the box office but this is another example of how and this has been a running theme throughout the podcast oftentimes the films that Hollywood acts like made money aren't the mm-hmm. ones that actually made money yeah yep Um, and the example I always give is that you know or, you know, that they made about the same amount. But, you know, in, night, in 2008, Iron Man comes out and makes $585 million worldwide. Oh, here we entire, go again. Here we go again. I here we go one. again, indeed. A joke that will make sense in about 30 seconds. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the entire industry as we know it changes. And everybody, mm-hmm. you know, the, the superhero takeover is complete, blah, blah, blah. You know, a month, you know, two months later, Mama Mia makes $609 million worldwide. Nothing changes. Yeah. I mean, hell, in 2008, that's when we start, first started having the conversation about, you know, should films about women be treated like box office poison? And this was a year where we had fucking Twilight, Sex in the City. Um, I think Sister of the Traveling Pants 2, if I'm not mistaken, that was that mm-hmm. year. Uh, and Mama Mia, again. Not only did Mama Mia make $609 million, it made $5 million less overseas than The Dark Knight and Ian Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull. It was the third biggest movie overseas in 2008. Mm. 
And, you know, to go back to this one, I mean, when you look at the kind of properties that Hollywood is trying to keep alive, arguably on life support to a certain extent, Conan, Blade Runner, Star Trek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the films that actually made money in 82, you know, Porky's, The the Sword and the Sorcerer, An Officer and a Gentleman, uh, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you can say, oh, taste change, things change. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I think a big problem is that the industry overall kind of tried to force feed what it thought audiences wanted for whatever reason, maybe because I've, you know, matched up to conventional wisdom about demographics, um, as opposed to what they actually wanted. And the end result is that, especially in theatrical, we end up with a situation that general audiences didn't want a lot of what Hollywood was selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now streaming is doing it all over again. Yeah. Because now they're triple downing on IP for the sake of IP that no one actually wants. Yeah. And the myth that you know, just because you're a tech company or a streaming platform, you can automatically develop an IP better than a studio. And we know that's not true. Right. You know, Resident Evil on Netflix was allegedly terrible. Cowboy Bebop on Netflix got canceled after a season. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to pick on Netflix, but they're the biggest high-profile one. You know, is anyone going to watch Lord of the Rings after the first several episodes? Mm-hmm. Or is it going to be people were kind of curious at first because it was big and expensive, but they're not the Peter Jackson movies. Right. And it's funny because the – I mean – Game of Thrones was the Lord of the Rings for TV. That was our fantasy. Yes. Wow, they can do crazy stuff with fantasy on TV now. Lord of the Rings, that was what it did for theaters. Like, that's uh-huh. a spectacle. And to some degree, Harry Potter brought those kind of fantasy things to screen. You need to find the next. Like, brand recognition is, yeah, it's already got the fans. It's already, like, and not all of those fans are going to show up. And not all, yeah, it's it's weird. That show could be majorly successful. I I don't know, but yeah, I, I assume season one will be successful. Mm-hmm. I just have lots of doubts about season three. Right, right, yeah. Um, because we we've seen that happen a lot with streaming shows where a big show debuts with lots of free media and lots of publicity and lots of hype, and as far as we know, people watch it, but really, who knows half the time, right? And then season two premieres with barely a whisper. Nobody watches because half the world, you know, 90% of the world doesn't even know it exists again and it gets canceled after two years. Yeah. I mean, I pay attention to a lot of things and even I forget when something, oh, that new, oh, that's on this week. You know, like that happens that's, to that's me. That's the one thing like, that Netflix does well. I mean, they do a lot well, but I'm not trying to be a dick here, but is that they are able to turn their shows into well watched hits just by virtue of putting them on the home page on the opening morning. Yeah, because you know how many times I've heard, oh, you know, this movie's coming out. And why hasn't there been any advertising? Or this show's coming out, and why isn't there advertising? And yet, it still, you know, ends up their most watched show with pretty decent opening weekend streaming numbers. Yeah, and you know, if they ever were to move into theatrical releases, and that's a big if, that would be their big challenge: is how do how does Netflix market something without just using their own page? Right. Right. You know, are they going to do, you know, two weeks before Knives Out 2 opens in theaters, theoretically, you know, you know, you open the Netflix homepage, it's, you know, Green Onion or whatever the hell it's called. Uh, Glass Onion. Thank you. Glass Onion, a Knives Out movie, you know, opening in two weeks in theaters. And also this film just debuted on Netflix. 
Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that because that would be uncharted territory. But, um, and wow, I just went off script. Please yeah. pull me back. Yeah, so let's let's go into the the box office opening weekend for Sword and the Sorcerer. Uh, it may it opened on April twenty third, nineteen eighty two. It earned a half hearted one point. Well, no, that's not true. It opened in two hundred thirty three theaters. We made one point eight million dollars for a seven thousand seven hundred twenty per screen average. It expanded to six hundred sixty theaters weekend two. Made four point one million dollars, and then it it. Descended two million, two and a half, two million, back up to two point six on Memorial Day, and then just under two million for about a month at a you know a weekend at a time, and it would end up with approximately thirty nine million dollars domestic, which is basically what Conan did, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, I I I know Netflix announced that they were developing a Conan show, you know, two years ago. I don't know if anything's come of that, but again, you know, it's 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 that's that's a property that was a success exactly once yeah. with the first Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Now, I like Conan the Destroyer, but it was not a huge hit. I don't hate the Jason Momoa, you know, readaptation, but it was not a hit. Mm. Not only was it not a hit, it made less money domestically and worldwide than The Northmen earlier this year, yeah. which was like a two-hour, 20-minute original movie with no stars, all due respect, in terms of butts and seats, and yet that original film did better than Conan. Because once again, it's IP isn't always the answer. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if you want to, I mean, you could probably snag up the Sword and Sorcerer IP not too expensively and make a show. If if creativity is not your forte, well, it's all, <laughs> and you need characters that are already outlined and you could just riff on what had been done before, why don't you pick up something like this and you can, oh, uh, have creative license with it because no one's going to care that. The people that are going to care that much not gonna matter like that's i agree that's like why aren't you snatching up these ips where you can just kind of explore because i mean oh if you if a set universe is something you want if you want the base already there get something that like people aren't using and try to hype it up as some new original thing you came up with and people go oh it's a remake (laughs) so i don't know i don't know but hey the sword and sorcerer um so I'm kinda of, kinda of hungry, Scott. Let's uh move on over to the diner. Wah, wah. Lame. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. I get a date with Carol Heathrow. She is death. It's the diner. And what they really want most isn't on the menu. Come on. Eddie's giving Elise a football quiz. If she fails, the marriage is off. And if she passes, it's two more days to the thing. Marge. You're a virgin, aren't you? Technically. Come on. You miserable creature. It's a slice of life. Did you turn it to such a thing? Overlook it. With a touch of spice. Better put the damn sheep down. And a little love. Who's admiring your horse? Where are you? A few beers, a few tears, a few great years. You happy with your marriage or what? Beth is terrific and everything, but always got the diner. Yeah, we always got the diner. They were sharing good times that soon became old times. Uh, my prayer. Flip side, heaven on earth, recorded by the Platters from Mercury Records, color of the label maroon. 
nothing could be finer than eating at the diner. These are like a building of feet. Where friends show up. But mostly show off. I'll hit you so hard I'll kill your whole family. Sick, you know that? That's because you got no sense of humor. It's a place to stop before moving on. Diner. It's open all day and cooking all night. All right. Uh, directed by Barry Levinson, written by Barry Levinson, starring. Mickey Rourke, Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Tim Daly, Kevin Bacon, Ellen Barkin, Paul Reiser, and Michael Tucker. A group of college-age buddies struggle with their imminent passage into adulthood in 1959, Baltimore. So, Diner was, like, when I was coming up with the schedule and what movies to do for the summer of 82 at 40... Diner was in there. Diner was out of there. Diner was in there. Diner was out of there. Diner was in there. And so this movie is credited as opening on March 5th, playing at a New York film festival on April 2nd, because uh, it opened in Baltimore on March 5th. Uh, played at a USA film festival in on May 5th. It has an opening wider on May 21st. And I think it just bounced around throughout the year. It's really, it was really hard to put my finger on, and I didn't feel confident enough putting it there as much as I wanted to because, spoiler, I love this movie. But you know what? I, I didn't. And then our listener came and was wondering if we would be covering it or could add it to it. And well, and first we, we said, fuck you. Hell no. Stop telling us how to run our show. You don't tell me what but I do then. with my time. Uh, no. But here we are. Diner. Uh, the the launch, the breakout of Barry Levinson. Um, holy crap. This is a... <laughs> this is a state almost fire kind of cast. Yeah. But this was the breakout for many. I mean, Stern had been around. Stern had breaking away a few years before, but this was the one. Uh, these guys... Uh, I... I first saw Diner in college. I had a professor that always would, he would reference this one once in a bit. And then uh, Grand Canyon also referenced that every once in a while. There's two movies oh, yeah. I was unfamiliar with. And I was at, when I was in college, I was at uh, like a Walmart one weekend after, during when I was in school. And there was, they used to have that $5 bin of DVDs. And I saw Diner sitting there. And I'm like, oh, that's a one, because it wasn't at the rental places or anything like that so i picked up diner i was like oh man this is great why isn't this like an american classic why isn't this bigger why isn't it, how did this movie disappear and like this cast this is the this is like the launch this is the big you know mickey rourke this is one of his big break and this was like the i think this is the role that people are like this guy's for real i think did it was heaven's gate like right before this oh uh, yes i, I believe it, so. but i don't think that was like this was uh, yeah, 1980 it's the one where um, he he stands out, and you watch this, and you're like, "This guy's a star." 
Holy crap. Um, and this was Ellen Barkin's first big movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim um, Daly. Uh, Tim Daly would go on to be a big TV star. Like, you used to... Tim Daly, if he was in something, you'd give it an episode or two. Like, that was the thing with Tim <laughs> Daly. Like, he'd be in a TV movie uh, or something. Uh, Kevin Bacon was here. He was around. I mean, he had he was a part of a lot of, like, breakout things at the time. Like, he was in Animal House. He did Friday the 13th. He's here with Diner. Uh, Paul Reiser, really early Paul Reiser, because um, he's got the least to do of any of them. He's got kind of a funny shtick part uh, with them. Uh, but uh, Scott, your thoughts on Diner Roca? Because I'll go into it even more. But I mean, as much as any film that we've talked about in the last four months, give or take, this one personifies the, you know, it's just a damn good movie when that used to be enough. Yeah. Uh, it's got a great cast. It's got a young and hungry filmmaker who would go on to have a ridiculously eclectic filmography. You know, he made Rain Man. He made Good Morning Vietnam. He, he made one directed- of your found footage films. I believe. Yeah, The Bay, which yeah. I think is the best found footage or movie ever made. Um, if you feel like spending five bucks to rent that one, it's about a town that gets infected by this weird parasite type biological contagion. And it's freaking terrifying <laughs> as someone that's not generally, you know, I, I'm not somebody that soiled my britches at the Blair Witch Project or anything, but the Bay, that one, that one works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Natural, that's another movie that sort of has a weird place in pop culture. And yeah, this was this was Kevin Bacon's. It wasn't his first movie because yeah, you're right. He had Friday the Thirteenth. He had Animal House. This was basically the first time people got to see him act in a movie. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. he's actually playing a character. Yeah. And this is, you know, Ellen Barkin's big breakout. I actually just watched The Big Easy for the first time in like 30 years on Tubi. Wow, that's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dennis Quaid is so fresh-faced and young. But no, it's, 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 again, it reminds me of something like uh, St. Elmo's Fire or mm-hmm. Short Term 12, which is a very good movie that feels fresh in its day because it's giving a spotlight to demographics that weren't, that were young enough to not be used to having their, you know, problems and issues and melodramas, you know, put front and center. And almost everyone in this cast, just like, you know, in short term 12 and Samos fire and a few other, you know, the outsiders, I think I would argue they all went on to be either stars or relatively well-known working actors. Mm -hmm. And you can see why Mm -hmm. everyone in this is very good. Yeah, like um, everybody all, goes on to something. Like yeah. everybody. It's insane. And it's 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 you know, the film's quality almost speaks for itself. It's just a rock solid character study. Mm-hmm. You know, it 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 plays in the you know, I think it's as good as American Graffiti in that sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very we were talking about this. Like this is this would double with good with American Graffiti. It's around the same period, but a different a little bit more yeah. those were high school kids. This is the college ones. It's just like uh, Samuel's Fire, which you keep mentioning um, over the episodes, it's like that one. I was like, it's like, it's like, what happened to the Breakfast Club after the Breakfast yes. Club? Yes, you know that, that was I the loved. other one that I was thinking that you know mm-hmm. everybody went on to do something. Yeah, um, like, I've always, I've always, I'm the weirdo like, that likes Samuel's Fire better just for whatever reason. That's fair. That they're both good movies. Um, yeah, they both they both work. Um, but yeah, like I it, watching it this time, I hadn't seen it in a few years. Uh, finally got me to like. I, I've had it on my like pick it up sometime on Blu-ray list, and I, I picked it up because of this. Everybody has an arc in this mm-hmm. movie, like a fair amount of screen time, a fair amount to focus on their story. Like even Ellen Barkin, she has herself a full like she's not just nagging wife of Daniel Stern going through uh, early marital conflicts. 
she gets it gets past the buck the baton gets passed to her for a while and you get to see her side of things and her working some things out um mickey Rourke plays the you know a lovable dirt bag of a character kind of but heart of gold works well um just yeah every like paul riser doesn't get like quite an arc but he's one of the first guys you you have talking in this and he's the guy who closes it out with the big speech um at the wedding and it's yeah and all the the characters i i always it was the first time i watched the movie i i I, when i was in college when they did the wedding at the end i don't i i was probably 19 or 20 when i saw this I was surprised it was a Jewish wedding. I was like, oh, because there's no, I don't think there was anything that would suggest that all the way through. And it felt like a, almost like a plot twist for me that I was like, oh, this is a Jew. Oh, it's a Jewish wedding. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know why that surprised me back then, but I just, it, well, I think it mattered, it's... but it was just something you didn't see. I don't think they showed a Jewish wedding that wasn't overly stylized, stereotypical one where it's like, Everybody, it was just casual, normal, like calm. Usually, that when they depict a Jewish wedding in a movie, it's my big fat Greek wedding with Jews. Yeah, something um, like that. Um, yeah, I, I just something I take to this movie. They have there's there's hangout spots. There's a lot of um, just people figuring out where they're at in life. Like Kevin Bacon deals with being an alcoholic, uh, and he's really really good at it too. Um, Gutenberg is. Probably the character that does, you know, it played for last back then, like trying to make his wife take, or his fiance has to pass a ridiculous test about the Baltimore Colts, <laughs> um, where it's like all up to them and there's a big moment, which it's still, it's funny and it's old timey stuff, but um, he's, yeah, really interesting. I it, It's kind of surprising, like he jumped out, he became like, of this cast, in the 80s, he was probably the biggest star of them when he yeah. hit his peak. The, the guy was everywhere until you know New Year's Eve 1989, switching over to 90. Then he he's gone. Um, because he didn't die. He just all of a sudden, like the 90s hit, and that guy was not. He got Tom Berenger. Yeah, and who knows if he didn't go to boxing, Mickey Rourke could have been one of the biggest stars on the planet, decorated in Oscars. Like yeah. Oh, the, he was the biggest. What it, if? Yeah, he was an incredibly acclaimed actor, insanely you know, you talented. Know, Bogart, Brando, De Niro, Rourke. Um, Just and I, I think not. You know, I think unfortunately for differing reasons, you know, both him and Steve Gutenberg were very good actors that be kind of became punchlines by the toward the end of their respective careers. Again, I think Gutenberg, I think, did himself a. I don't know. I wonder if he had just not done. I think the Police Academy movies hurt his career. Let's put it that well, way. Well, the I, the first one helped, and then the, yeah. the yeah, and then he went Three Men and a Baby. Um, yeah, yeah, he was everywhere. I mean, but like Rourke, just pop in anything he was in, and you'll his performance. I I there I haven't seen all those movies from back then, but I can tell you I'm gonna probably enjoy it just because the guy's so natural, like Angel Heart, uh, Pope of Greenwich Village, like all these movies, uh, Barfly, like he's just like unnaturally smooth and just like natural, like it. 
you know when, he's really good at it, but it looks effortless and it's insane. When he, he was obviously younger and he was in his element, mm-hmm. he was a volcanic force of nature. Yeah. In a way that I didn't appreciate till I got much no, older and actually no. tracked down some of his older movies. Because even by the time I was, you know, t- you know, 10 or 12 and paying attention to this stuff, he had basically already peaked. Yeah, yeah, he was he was boxing and barely yeah. doing any movies. Like I think he did some, and then when he came back, he was just who knew. I mean, great. didn't look his normal self. He's still he's still good. I mean, yeah. well, he's still wrestler. an interesting actor. Yeah, it just I mean you know even the wrestler was you know fourteen years ago. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah, craziness. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's saying this in this movie Levinson. It's a beginning of a trilogy uh, of his with the Baltimore like growing up. Uh, Avalon's the second one, and then Liberty Heights, a very underappreciated, underseen movie, still not on Blu-ray. Um, I like that one a lot too. That uh, one's a blind spot for me. It's a Ben Foster, early Ben Foster role, where you're like, man, that kid's kids going places. Uh, and oh, Adrian Brody, really good in that movie <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah, that's a that's a high recommend there too. Um, Avalon, I think I saw one. I can't remember too much. That's about terrific. Avalon. Yeah. Great uh, score too. One of my favorite, yeah. you know, put this in every trailer kind of score. Yeah. You know, back when trailers actually had scores from other right. movies. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, Levinson's great. Um, he knows how to handle that. He's great with a cast. Like you can tell he's an actor's director type person. I mean, you go on to do Rain Man, all sorts of like great stuff. I liked his film. Um, like I really like his film Bandits that he made with. Yes, Ruth that Lewis. was fun. It's a fun one. Um, he's never um, really lost it. It just kind of. Oh, he did that one with Robin Williams. What was it? Did a couple with Robin. Yeah, I mean, it's, a couple. They it, kept. You know, I mean, Good Morning Vietnam is excellent, yeah. but Toys is Toys, not. Yeah, yeah. Man of the it. Year is not. Yeah, yeah. Every time and, him you know, and Robin whatever. got back, just didn't work out. <laughs> it yeah. Didn't work out. But like you said, the Bay was great. Uh, per- yeah. This is a way before pandemic movie, and no one brought it up during the pandemic. Uh, that is true. I probably should have. What is Envy? I don't even remember Envy. Oh, that's the one. Yeah, Ben Stiller. Okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, you know, Wag the Dog is a, is a yes. modern classic. Yep. And that was really, I mean, I like Bandits, but I think Wag the Dog was probably his last unmitigated success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, that was the Best Picture nominee, I believe. Spear was a classic. How do they fuck that up situation? Yeah. I guess, that's apparently- actually my favorite Michael, Michael Crichton book. Oh, no, it's a good book. That's a really good book. Yeah. And the movie is not. Um, I think part of it is just, you know, Event Horizon had just come out. Like, this is a softcore PG-13 version of Event Horizon. Interestingly enough, I've you know, recently years have pointed out, like, D- Dustin Hoffman being someone a bit difficult to work with, but he worked with him multiple times. Yeah. So, uh, um, they got along. Yep. Um. Yeah, and, you know, obviously that, that happens in certain relationships. I mean, say what you will about Russell Crowe, but he and Ridley Scott clearly get along. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I feel like oh, we're young on Sherlock like, Holmes, which is you know, it was one of the first films to have like you know live action CGI as a major. Oh, that's right, right. Know. Yeah, Luke. Uh, I recently and, talked about that, or didn't talk about that, but that was like, mean, the Lucasfilm documentary. In a skewed way, that film almost invented the modern origin story reboot franchise flick. True, because it's it's right before Santa Claus the movie. Oh yeah, which was the Sawclins. Obviously, they were basically pouring Superman into a Santa Claus bottle. Right. And in a skewed way, that film kind of like, okay, let's take this IP that is not an action fantasy IP and try to make it an action fantasy IP. This is true. 
um, very ahead of its time in not necessarily good ways. But Sherlock Holmes, young Sherlock Holmes, I enjoy. I actually that think I think that's a uh, especially if you actually were lucky enough to see it when you were a kid mm-hmm. when it was some of the coolest shit you've ever seen. Right, right. Like wow, this PG thirteen movie has murder and gore and carnage. It's awesome. Yes. Yep. Like the Goonies, which is not. Yeah. Monster, <laughs> Monster, Monster Squad forever. Monster yeah. Squad forever. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Hey, you guys. No, Wolfman's got nards. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. That's where Scott's at. And, you know, I mean, not not to keep just jumping on the, the Levinson bandwagon, but yeah, you know, it, it's Bugsy was a huge hit. And a, it a big time. I remember being surprised that it did not win a bunch of Oscars. You know, that was a year that Silence of the Lamb sweeped. Yeah. In retrospect, that makes sense. It's one of my favorite movies. So, but yeah. going into the Oscars, I was under the impression that Bugsy was the favorite to win Best Picture. No, was, yeah. Yeah, especially at that time, if you had Warren Beatty yeah. in your family, <laughs> don't mess with him. Um, They're going to make up for Reds this year. Uh, exactly. That was part of it. Mm. And, you know, he had you know he had been in a relationship with Annette Bennings. It was sort of the whole Hollywood's biggest, you know, eligible bachelor finally settles down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Disclosure is stupid fun, but it's incredibly entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sleepers is fine. It's one of those films that's very much of the whole Brad Pitt's trying to kill the, you know, the Legend of the Fall heartthrob image period of his career. Right, right. Basically everything from, you know, seven through up to, I don't know, Troy. There's got to be something before Troy. That could be the Mexican. Oh, the, yeah. There's uh, the game, uh, or not the game, uh, Fight Club <laughs> is in there. Yeah, yeah, but that's actually, that's very much of the whole, right. you know, I don't want to be a heartthrob type thing. But anyway. Yeah, no. Uh, diner, high recommend. Uh, fries and gravy, actually not bad. That was something after diner. Uh, in college, we would go to late night uh, breakfast spots, and I was like, you know what? Diner, they have fries and gravy. I'm going to try that. Not bad, because it's breakfast gravy. It's not like gravy gravy. You use the white breakfast gravy. Goes good on fries. So who knew? Diner knew. Diner knew. It was probably something Levinson did from back then. But yeah, <laughs> oddly enough, we had two... Uh, one movie about college kids in the 1950s and one movie about high school kids in the 1950s uh, surrounded by a place of, they made up one of bar, Porky's, the strip club or whatever that bar was, and then the other, a diner in Baltimore. <laughs> and this movie always, it's got a very fall and cold feel to it, which I kind of like too. Um, but yeah, I, I high rec- one of the highest recommends of the summer of 82 at 40 at the very end Diner. So we end. <laughs> we're not ending on garbage. We're ending. Well, that was on part diner. of the point of this, I think, of this for this yeah. epilogue. This epilogue, yeah. Um, so was, you know, I, 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 yeah. I mean, sort of the sorcerer is interesting to talk about. Porgy is garbage, but it's interesting garbage. Mm-hmm. And diner is excellent. And again, I think it's a typical example of what we've been talking about a lot throughout the summer, which is that you know, back in the day, just being a very good movie was enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, well, you know, it's, 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 it is what it is. Weirdly enough. I mean, if I could skip to the box office stuff, cause Let's go. obviously this film never ranked much higher than like 15 like, what, or whatever. 14? 14 yeah. I think yeah. 14 was, well, it topped out with 14 domestic, but I mean, yeah. you know, it opened in, in May of 82, allegedly. I think, allegedly. On, I mean, I, I think here it's listed as, yeah, May 21st, 1982, mm-hmm. made $218,000 in 21 theaters. 
you know, it's at its peak, it was at 266 theaters in the middle of September with 489,000. So it was a slow under the radar earner. And I think in terms of why doesn't have a bigger audience without disagreeing with, you know, it is a very good film. I think the only reason anyone talks about it at all is because everyone involved did go on to bigger and better things. Yeah. Um, and whether or not it deserves to have a better, bigger reputation, judging just by its finance, you know, commercial performance, it would have dropped off the face of the earth if not for what everyone did afterwards. Yeah. True, 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 true. Yeah, it's a big launch. Like, it, you go back and be like, whoa. But I guess, you know, kids today probably wouldn't look at this cast and go, whoa, they might know <laughs> Kevin yeah? Bacon. Well, Paul Reiser, yeah. he's in Stranger Things. Yeah. Um, and kids Mickey love Whiplash. Iron so. Man 2. Yeah, Mickey works at Iron Man 2. Gutenberg. And the Expendables. Gutenberg was, uh, if people still watch Veronica Mars, are still that's still something to keep up. He there. hasn't done much. I mean, I, I don't mean to pick on him, but when you look at his, mm-hmm. you know, it's like he's still, you know, he talks, he's one of those guys that makes press when he says, oh, yeah, another Three Men and a Baby movie is right around the corner. Or, yes, we want to do another Police Academy right. movie. It's ready to rock. It's like, yeah. A, that's not going to happen. B, why? Yeah. Three Men and a okay, fine. If you want to do a Disney Plus with that, that's fine. Knock yourself out. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, Daniel Stern, everybody sees at Christmas time when they watch home alone. Yes. Uh, Michael Tucker was a big TV presence. Uh, he plays the guy who runs the diner. Um, but he was on like LA law and like, which is a show that people don't remember, but, um, well, those listening here might remember who knows. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was a big kind of recognized him from being on TV and stuff. LA Law, think She-Hulk, but without She-Hulk. There you go. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, so that, that does it for the summer of 82. We said last time. I know, but are you sure this is really the end? This is really the end. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's been a lot of fun. I was glad to come back for one more. I was happy because that last one was just, uh, I'm glad <laughs> we dangled the porkies. And I'm, I'm happy for the listener that said, do diner, damn it, because we end on diner. We can't give in to these people. I gave, I gave in. And thank you to, yeah, all the listeners, everybody, uh, our one patron, Michael, thank you for the whole ride. Hope you would, hope it was worth the, the money. Um, it kept Scott around. It kept Scott around. So, wait, wait. I I got paid. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's like that. There's an episode of Teen Titans Go where they like track down their one fan and like stalk him just because they're obsessed with figuring out why he's the only one that actually likes the show. <sighs> oh, maybe people just didn't know or didn't care or don't like me. I don't. I don't put. I'm just being a schmuck. I just put it up. I put it up. So appreciate that as always. Um, and yeah, so thanks everyone for listening. I hope you come back for more of the Brandon Peter show. There will be things in the intermittent time. Like always, I'm, I'm personally going to take a little bit of time off. I have some bank commentaries from out now with Aaron and Abe, which Scott will appear on a couple of them that will play over the next couple of weeks. Um, and I'll be back with a kind of year end, uh, review thing, like with Greg Magoon that I did last time. And Scott and I, in the meantime, will be recording and getting ready for, uh, the Tim Burton retrospective, which we talked up at the top. So we'll hope you come back for that in the fall. Other things will happen. I've got plans, um, familiar faces from the show doing some episodes and such. So come on back, but Scott till then, 
Um, you know what? They've heard it all many times before, but do it once more. Let them know. Forbes.com. You can Google Forbes, Scott Mendelson, and the ticket booth. There you go. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, Renwork at So Blue. There's always more from the Brandon Peters show, uh, including Old Space Show, which will be continuing to be new um, during my little downtime with Steven Schapansky doing Blake 7, which you can find on BritBox only. So, or maybe if you get in the deep parts of the web, you can find some of it. But BritBox is the preferred summer. method. Yes. The summer that brought you Coneheads, Super Mario Brothers, another stakeout, and Weekend at Bernie's 2. All the, the sequels. of 1993 at 30. Heck yeah. We'll be coming back for that next year. Um, oh, and also Sliver and Son-in-Law. For all the, for all the uh, Summer of fans, please stick around for more between the now and then. But uh, Also Life with Mikey. All right, but until uh, then, stay focused. The summer of 82 and 40. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.